I did apply to law school. My mother is a lawyer. I did apply to law school. But sort of at the last minute, I made the decision of going to computer science decision. Of course, I, I do not regret it all. 73 war started, and I had to go, and I was called to serve during the war. So you sum up all this time, all together, I spent about five years in the military. You, you have to compartmentalize. You put your science and engineering on the side, and you just do your military thing. Being a Jew, my likelihood to ever be a scientist was close to zero. I wasn't even considering it as a career. You know, you're Russian, people will make jokes about your accent, and this would be mm. all the time. But even if I speak to them in English, when I'm sort of analyzing them, that's in Hebrew. And I can tell you that many, many times I've heard, oh my God, she's not like our father. Both of my parents are Holocaust survivors. They met in what's called a DP camp in Germany, DP stands for Displaced Persons Camp. You know, I couldn't believe it because they always say it's one in eight, but you always think that you are the seventh one because I never had any cancer in my family. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. a nation that has existed for millennia, and yet a nation that has existed for only 74 years since 1948, a nation and peoples for whom immigration has been a way of life for millennia, a nation named Israel. Today's episode features oral history stories from three extremely distinguished computer scientists who immigrated from Israel to the U.S., one in 1981, one came in 1994, and the third came in 1997. All three were reluctant immigrants to the U.S., planning to return to Israel. And yet, they each have gone on to become the top technologists in their respective fields, spanning academia and industry, and spanning artificial intelligence, machine learning, security, blockchain, natural language processing, and medical informatics. The three stories of our three guests, or narrators, are very different from each other. The subsequent episodes following this lead episode contain the full oral history interviews with these individual computer scientists. These oral history interviews are not intended to be a representative sample. They are just the personal immigration stories of three prominent computer scientists who immigrated from Israel to the US. While this episode features three ethnically Jewish guests originally from Israel, I must note that about 20% of Israeli residents in Israel are of Arab ethnicity. In this podcast, we have previously interviewed computer scientists who were originally from Arab countries in the Middle East. You'll find these interviews where we visited Lebanon, Egypt, and Iran in episodes 9, 
10, 11, and 12 of this podcast. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. Now, while this episode is not intended to be a history lesson about Israel or the conflicts in that country, events in Israel's history are naturally intertwined with the experiences of our guests, so that you may interpret their experiences in a broader sense I'm going to provide a little bit of context about the Jewish people and Israel. Again, this is not meant to be comprehensive. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, from the ancient times to the Egyptian kingdoms, to occupation under the Roman Empire around 0 BC, to occupation under the Ottoman Empire from the 1500s to early 1900s before World War I, and through diaspora spread out all across the world, the Jewish people sustained a dream of returning to their homeland in the Middle East. And yet, by the 1800s, there were only about 25,000 Jews left in their ancient homeland, mostly around Jerusalem. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, in 1947, the United Nations voted to partition the region into separate Jewish and Arab states. The State of Israel was proclaimed in 1948. Immediately, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq declared war on Israel. After surviving that war, Israel's first government was formed in 1949. Since then, until today, Israel continues to be a democratic republic with a parliamentary system of government, headed by a prime minister. Immigration of Jewish peoples from all around the world into Israel continued steadily in the few decades before Israel's formation in 1948, and this immigration became heavier after Israel's formation in 1948. And of course, most of our listeners know about the treatment of the Jewish peoples under the Nazis before and during the Second World War. Two of our guests today had their parents immigrate from Europe to Israel before they were each born. And our third guest herself migrated from Europe to Israel with her parents in 1990, making her a double immigrant from Europe to Israel and eventually from Israel to the US. Conflicts and wars unfortunately have become a part of the reality in Israel, often a fight for survival against some of the neighboring states. Israel has seen conflicts nearly every decade since its formation. It is inevitable that Israeli history and these conflicts will feature in the experiences of our three guests today. Two of our guests, one male and one female, were both involved in the front lines of fighting in the Israel-Lebanon war of the 1980s. We'll talk about that. And yet, the beauty of the country, its color, food, smells, plants, people, traditions, hold a strong charm for those who grew up in it. You'll hear this love for Israel in our guests' voices in this episode. Today's episode features three distinguished computer scientists who are also amazing human beings. Each of them has a very unique story. All three of our guests are currently professors at MIT, Rice University, and University of Pennsylvania, respectively. Two of these three have also worked a total of 33 years in industry. Two of the three did their PhDs in Israel and first came to the U.S. for their postdocs. The third of the three came to the U.S. as a housewife, and yet she went on to do her PhD and eventually became a faculty at MIT. We'll talk about that. 
Let's meet our three guests and hear their voices. Our first guest was born in the US in the 1960s when her parents were visiting from Israel on their sabbatical. Then our guest moved back to Israel at the tender age of one, and then she grew up there in Israel for the next 33 years of her life. After finishing her PhD in Israel in 1994, she immigrated to the US for her postdoc with the full intention of returning back to Israel. And yet, for various reasons, she stayed on in the US. Since then, she has spent 23 years in IBM research, and quite recently, she became a university professor. She was also recently ranked by Business Insider as number four on the list of 22 most powerful women engineers in the world. This guest, our first guest, is Tal Rabin. I did apply to law school. My mother is a lawyer. I did apply to law school. But sort of at the last minute, I made the decision of going to computer science decision. Of course, I, I do not regret at all. That was Tal Rabin, currently a professor of computer information science at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also head of research at the Algorand Foundation, working on blockchain technology. She's highly decorated, being a fellow of the ACM, fellow of the AAAS, a fellow of the IACR, that's cryptologic research, member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the 2019 RSA Award for Excellence in Mathematics. That is Tal Rabin. Now on to our second guest. He was born in Israel in the 1950s and grew up in a kibbutz. That's a commune inside Israel. There are many of them inside Israel. And he grew up in a kibbutz during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. He also fought in multiple wars, including the 1980s Israel-Lebanon conflict. He did his PhD in 1981 in Israel. He moved to the U.S. in 1981 for a postdoc with the full intention of, yes, again, returning to Israel. And yet again, for family reasons, he stayed on in the U.S., spending first 10 years at IBM research and then another nearly 30 years to date as a university professor. He's won two of the most coveted Lifetime Achievement Awards in computer science research, the Godel Prize in 2000, given for Lifetime Achievement in Theoretical Computer Science, and the Nuth Prize, named after Donald Nuth, which he won in 2021 for seminal contributions to computer science foundations. This guest, our second guest, is Moshe Vardi. 73 war started, and I had to go and I was called to serve during the war. That was Moshe Vardi, currently professor of computer science at Rice University. He's also an outspoken proponent of change in the way the computer science community views itself. He is an ACM fellow, an IEEE fellow, a AAAS fellow, a AAAI fellow, fellow of the American Mathematical Society, fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a Guggenheim Fellow. Again, that's Moshe Vardi. Our third guest is very unique. She is a double immigrant. She was born in the East European nation of Moldova, a small nation. And I'm going to pronounce that with the native pronunciation as Moldavia. Moldavia was one of the 15 nations or states that comprised the Soviet Union, Communist USSR. Our guest spent the first 20 years of her life in Moldavia, at age 20 in 1990, just as the USSR was breaking up, she immigrated along with her parents from Moldavia to Israel. She then did her bachelor's and master's in Israel during the early and mid-1990s. 
1997, she immigrated from Israel to the U.S. as a housewife. Yet she went on to complete her Ph.D. from Columbia University in New York City and then became a faculty member at MIT. This guest, our third guest, is Regina Barzilai. Being a Jew, my likelihood to ever be a scientist was close to zero. I wasn't even considering it as a career. That was Regina Barzilai, currently Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT. She is highly decorated. She won the MacArthur Fellowship, also known as a Genius Grant, in 2017. She's a AAAI Fellow. And in 2020, she was the first recipient of the $1 million AAAI Squirrel Award for Artificial Intelligence for the Benefit of Humanity. That's a highly meaningful award and quite tied to Regina's story. You see, in 2014, while Regina was a mid-career faculty at MIT, she was shocked to learn that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. The story of how she not only survived this cancer, but also used it to motivate the next stage of her research career, computer science research dealing with cancer and oncology, is absolutely amazing. We'll cover that on this episode as well. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. In this episode, we cover the story of the early childhoods of our three guests. Two of them grew up in a kibbutz. We also cover expectations from family, society, and parents. Their experiences with war and persecution. Language and culture feature in our acts. How research careers and choices often happen because of random chance. Computing in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Quite primitive, but quite different from today. And how to overcome adversity and imposter syndrome, as well as comparisons to a famous parent. All of that in today's episode. Act 1. First impressions of Israel as an immigrant and growing up in a kibbutz. We can understand a little bit of the life in the community of people who immigrated from across the world into Israel in the 1990s by listening to the story of Regina Barzilai, currently professor at MIT. Regina was born and grew up in the East European country of Moldova, or the native pronunciation Moldavia. In 1990, when she was aged 20, she immigrated to Israel from Moldavia with her parents. She describes her first impressions of Israel. You know, it was really beautiful. It, it was so very different from Moldavia because it was like sunny. Uh, the buildings were very different because like in Moldavia, like uh, in, at least in Kishinev, because it was all, you know, planned by the all this, uh, you know, communist government. It was very well organized, the structure and so on, you know. Uh, Israel has a lot of flavor of kind of crazy Middle East. So it's like all these different buildings and, uh, you know, like food. People saw it on the street, very, very different. Um, and uh, it was really exciting. I found a lot, of, I, I love plants. So I found a lot, a lot of um, plants that I didn't see that were, you know, there were these different smells and different colors. And people looked very different because I grew up with an idea because where, you know, I grew up, the Jewish people look kind of similar to how I look. Uh, but in Israel, there was a whole mix, you know, there were, Jewish people like from Morocco and from India and they were they just look very different uh, there were a lot of diversity yeah. 
um, there were totally different smells. So it was really exciting and um, so exciting and scary. Scary? No, scary not in the sense, I mean, it was very peaceful times. You know, when we arrived, it was a time that I think, uh, you know, like one million people, uh, Russian, not Russians, I mean, I'm not Russian, but uh, people from USSR moved within yeah. like two years or something to Israel. At the time, it, it, it was pretty tough because even with a desire to help, you know, you have such a huge influx in the population. And it was really not clear to me how, you know, we're going to survive economically. I came from a family right. which was, you know, upper middle class family. And, um, you know, I never really thought very hard how my parents, you know, how, how the money comes. Or, and all of a sudden, you're really starting in the very, very bottom. It's, it's scary. And also, I saw, I still remember, you know, there were people on the street, um, who came, you know, from somewhere from USSR, who were like playing music. And it's clear, clear that it's classically train, trained musicians. Or, you know, there were a lot of people who really would take any job uh, that will pay the bills. And in some ways it's fine. Of course, we all need jobs. But it was such a humongous shift. And, and people, right. the, all these newcomers... Um, on one yeah. hand, very different from the native population. On the other hand, they tried to get into the society and it wasn't an easy entrance. Two of our guests, Regina Barzilay, professor at MIT, and Moshe Vardi, professor at Rice, spent significant time in a kibbutz. That's a commune in Israel. First, here's Regina briefly describing her experience in the 1990s. And I uh, went, when we arrived, uh, I went to be in a kibbutz. Kibbutz, it's like a mm -hmm. collective uh, agricultural, you know, commune where people, you know, live together. They don't only do agriculture, they may have some small uh, businesses. So uh, I went to the north uh, on my own after like a few weeks after we arrived. And I pretty much stayed there for several months until I learned Hebrew and here is Moshe Vardi, professor at Rice and Goodell Prize winner, describing his upbringing in a kibbutz in Carmel, Israel, and the really interesting story of why his family decided to leave the kibbutz. So you grew up in the Israel in the 1970s and 60s and a bit of the 1950s. Uh, those were very early days in your life and also very early days in the nation of Israel itself as the country was officially formed in the late 1940s. Uh, what do you remember about the country from your early years growing up? I grew up in a kibbutz. A kibbutz is a, was an experiment of socialism in the small, kind of a, a, a collective. Main focus was on uh, agriculture and, and hospitality. It was a very idyllic, idyllic place. It was a small, you know, probably around maybe 50 to 60 family up on the Carmel Hills. So I have a lot of no no nostalgia for for the place. Um, it was, you know, outside. Once you step outside of the kibbutz boundaries, it was practically the wilderness. So it was for me. It was a great place to to grow up. I could never. Uh, I I felt pity for my relatives from the city. I grew up in the city. To me, it was the freedom of growing up in the in the country was was just the way to grow up. I mean, 
When I went outside, my parents never asked, where are you going? I just said, I'm going to play. Okay, go play. Let's be back in, in time for dinner. Mm-hmm. And it was just completely safe. Mm. And there was a lot of trust. It sounds like there was a lot of trust among the families in the kibbutz that uh, yes. your parents would just let you go. Oh, yeah, they would let me go. They knew that I would be. They didn't have to worry about me. It was a classical thing that nobody locked doors. doors so I didn't have a key mm. to the house. Why do you need a key? The, the house was open. So um, there was this kind of uh, of uh, growing up. So this was very, very idyllic. But at the same time, at uh, maybe around age 12, I decided to design a board game. Mm. And I designed a board game. And the board game, it was a two-player board game. And one side was the PLO. And the other side was the, the PILO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And the other side was the, the IDF. And the, the PLO was trying to infiltrate and bomb things, and the IDF was supposed to stop them. The game did not prove to be very popular with my friends because no one ever wanted to play the PLO. Mm. <laughs> but it's kind of, so the game was a bust in some sense, but... To me, it's kind of interesting. It tells me about the mindset of a 12-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy who in, in this idyllic setting already worried about terrorism. So you can never get away from the security equations in Israel. Mm-hmm. So this was a game of strategy that you designed based on yeah. you know, there's things you were hearing in the news or the things that we were hearing people talking. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And um, what about the schooling? So was the schooling inside the kibbutz uh, community itself? No, the kibbutz was too small to have its own school. It mm. had a, a regional school. Mm. Now, the regional school was just next to the kibbutz. So it was really, I don't know, half a mile away. I did not have to walk very far. Mm. Uh, some other places, the, the children were bused, had a bus. But we just had to walk. So mm. the, 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 the school was practically in the kibbutz. But it was really a regional school for mm. what we call the the Carmel uh, Shores. I see. It was a re- regional council. Tell us a little bit about the kibbutz itself. So here, like today, now in the U.S., we have these communities of houses, and sometimes you know kids go over and have play dates and things like that. Uh, it seems to me that the kibbutz is more tightly knit uh, than that. Can you say a little bit more about how tightly, how how exactly the families are tightly knit inside the kibbutz? So, so the kibbutz was really an attempt that ultimately, historically, and that will take an hour just to talk just about that, but it was trying to implement socialism in the small rather than in the large. So in the large means, you know, with basically it's what we call a centralized economy. Right. Okay. And here it, 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 it's uh, what people here would call in Nazis as a commune. Really, it will be the equivalent of a commune, economic commune. The people in the kibbutz essentially had an economic partnership. And so, so they own, they own the means of production collectively. And so they're all essentially self-employed, so to speak. The kibbutz was a partnership. The kibbutz own all the, all the, all the means of production. We had fields, we have a barn, we have cows, we have some point sheep, everything. We will have a, actually a, a guest house. And uh, there was someone who was the labor coordinator and he told people, this is where we need you now. So, now you need to walk here, and now you need to walk there. And you got paid by family size. And it was called not called even a salary. Mm-hmm. It was really more like an allowance. It was called a budget. 
-hmm. and the budget was just a function of family size. Now that kibbutz was a bit unique. At that time, in the early 50s, in the mid, mid to late 50s and 60s, kibbutzim in Israel also, it was an idea that ultimately did not succeed. Well, the idea was to liberate women from a lot of housework. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the children grew up, again, collectively. Mm -hmm. But this kibbutz was, had, I grew up in a, in, in a, in a, in a, with a family. So I, yeah. I, was go I grew up in a family. So your parents, um, did they work in the kibbutz itself? My parents worked in the kibbutz itself, yes. And the food that you ate that was cooked in a communal way by several people? The food was, the food was cooked at home. It was cooked at home, just your the home itself. Yeah. Home. So we had, a, so the, the, unlike some other things, we had basically a family, my parents, Myself and my siblings, we grew up in a home. My wife, my, my mother had a, was in charge of, of cooking. Mm -hmm. So it was all in the context of a family structure, mm -hmm. family unit. And, and did, your, um, did your father, your mother, did they have professions that were related to engineering or science? Uh, not at all. Not at all. So the kibbutz, so my mother had to do with more with the with hospitality, the kibbutz is a guest house. Mm. And my mother worked worked in the worked for the guest house. Mm. Uh, my father started actually as a as an auto mechanic. Mm. And at some point he said no, I, he decided he wanted a little more and he asked the kibbutz to send him to a teacher seminary and he became a teacher. Mm. Uh, for my childhood I enjoyed much more for to have my father as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Because that was fun. Tractors, machines, uh, uh, soldering, you know, all these things. That was kind of fun mm. as a child. Mm. A, a, a father who was a teacher, it was actually very boring. Yeah. <laughs> but for my father, my father was an important step in his kind of intellectual yeah. development. And in fact, uh, after about um, 15 years in the kibbutz, he wanted to go to college. He decided he wants to go to college. Mm. And he went to kibbutz and says, I'm, I just, I want to go to college. I'll continue my to work, full-time job, and I want to go to college. Mm. And the kibbutz says, well, you want to go to college. That's very individualistic. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a kibbutz here. We make collective decisions. The membership will decide whether or not you should go to college. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, you want to go to college, next next thing. Everybody wants to go to college. We can't manage it, the things that way. So the membership will decide if if, uh, if you're going to go to college. And to my father, that was, uh, he didn't realize, being a kibbutz, it means such a loss of auto autonomy that he cannot pursue his educational aspirations. Right. And at that point, he said, he basically made a decision, and uh, my mother was not happy about it, and... But he just, he was a, a tough man and he said, we're leaving. I see. And we, he found a job as a teacher somewhere else and we packed our stuff and moved. I see. So he didn't even wait for the kibbutz to render their judgment on whether they No, no, he did not even wait. He did not like the idea that, that the membership will decide whether or not he can go to college. He said, that's my, as long as I'm doing my job, he said, I want to work a full-time job and go to college. And they said, well, you know, but uh, the kibbutz will decide. And he didn't, he didn't like this loss of autonomy. Mm -hmm. How old were you at this time? 
when you left. I was the... 13 years old. So this was a big, big, big transition for me. So that transition was must have been quite a bit of a shock, right? Because you grew up in a communal kibbutz and then suddenly you moved to this outside world. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, but it was, it's more than just, it's in some sense, you know, the, the child loser, you kind of develop roots. And so I'm a bit, I kind of take my, the fact that I kind of move around, the fact that at age 13, I, I lost my original roots. And the next place where I moved, I was there for three years and then I moved. So I, I can't, you know, I didn't have the, what some people have, they grow up all the way to, to age 18 in one place. I did not have it. I kind of moved and I, I you know, it's a, I don't know, you call it my rootlessness. You either think of it as a plus or a minus, but uh, I, I did move around. And in some sense, I've been moving around. In fact, Houston is the place I've, I've been, I, I, I've been living the longest. Yeah, yeah. So if people ask me, what are you? I should say I'm a Houstonian, but it doesn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You've been there for 28 years at this point, at least. Yeah, yeah. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Israel, featuring immigrant computer scientists from Israel. Act 2. Parents, mom's influence, finding jobs as an immigrant in Israel, and family expectations that you become a rabbi. First, we talk to Tal Rabin, professor at UPenn. She was born in the U.S. when her parents were visiting from Israel on their sabbatical. Then Tal returned to Israel at the tender age of one, and she stayed in Israel until she finished her PhD in 1994, in her early 30s. Some of you may also know that Tal has a famous father. We'll talk about him later on in this episode. First, Tal describes her mother's influence on her life, as Tal was growing up in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. I did apply to law school. My mother is a lawyer. I did apply to law school. But sort of at the last minute, I made the decision of going to computer science decision. Mm. Of course, I, I do not regret at all. Mm. Your mother was a lawyer. What effect did that have on you when you were growing up? I don't think it had. The law itself had an effect. But you should think about my mother. My mother today is 92 years old. Oh. And she had a career for a woman her age. That was not the standard thing. So I think that my mother's impact on my life was really as a role model, as knowing that you can have both an impressive career and also take care of the kids. Of course, the taking of the kids was not shared equally then, and maybe still is not shared equally today. So I did learn that you can do both things if you want. And I think of my mother as an amazing mother, and she was always there and available to me when I needed. So you could do it and do it well. And I think that this was important for me. When I was going through my career and had two girls, to know that even if I'm not there, 100% of the time, because I do work and I invest in that, that I can be 
maybe I'm not the perfect mother. Most likely I'm not the perfect mother, but I can be a good mother. What was a typical day like when you were growing up in like early school, middle school, a typical school day? What, what would that be like for you? So I didn't study much. So, oh, first of all, I'd be late to school because I love to sleep. And I lived five minutes from school, but believe me, I never made it on time to school. So that would be the beginning. Then I'd be in school. The school day was short, definitely at the beginning. Maybe we finished school at one, two, and then later at three, that was probably the latest that school went on in Israel. And always friends, friends, scouts. uh, Those were the things that I loved to do, uh, studying, not so much. Not so much. And then when you came back home, uh, w- your your mom was at work and your dad was at work? So my father, in fact, many times tried to come home during lunch to eat with me and my sister if we were there. But we had a babysitter who took care of us. And in fact, I saw her about three weeks ago when I was in Israel. Wow. And what was, she's still in touch with my mother because my mother had a profound impact on her life, on this babysitter's life. Um, she was the daughter of my parents' housekeeper. I see. And uh, my mother really changed her life. She ended up being in charge of English studies in Jerusalem. And really, a lot of this came from uh, my mother's presence and involvement in her life. So she still keeps in touch with my mother and visits her. And so I saw her uh, three weeks ago when I was in Jerusalem. And what I didn't understand at the time was that she was 12 years old Mm. when she started taking care of us in the afternoons. But uh, she grew up with us. And on the next sabbatical, my parents took her with us to the U.S. So she was part of our lives in a meaningful way. Tal's parents themselves were immigrants into Israel from Germany and Austria. I asked her what it was like growing up in Israel as a child of immigrants. Now, your your dad himself uh, immigrated. Where he was born in Germany and then moved to Mandate Palestine in the 1930s. D- did you feel that? Did you feel some of those immigrant experiences come in when you were growing up? Or was that completely transparent from you? No, it was completely nothing. My mother immigrated from Austria. Same same year, maybe both came, I think, in 35. They were Israelis to me. And in fact, uh, to some level, I always complained. They never spoke German between them. So I didn't learn German. And uh, that's a loss. But my parents were just Israelis to me. And I never thought of them as immigrants. I think they came very early and that was just eliminated. Did immigrants into Israel in the 1990s find jobs easily? Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, who moved from Moldavia to Israel in 1990 at age 20, talks about the experiences of her parents. Did your parents have an easy or difficult time finding new jobs in Israel? Yeah, so my parents actually had very tough, like everybody else. So, you know, my parents came after they were 40s and... At that time, you know, the likelihood that you're going to work based on your, um, you know, profession was close to zero, unless you have some connection or something like this. And I remember we found an apartment, uh, you know, in some city near Tel Aviv. And my father found a job, you know, like everybody feel we, we have to find something so we can, you know, we can pay the bills. And my father went to work in the gas station. And he actually worked on this gas station, I think, for 12 mm. years. 
working 12 hours a day because you know every penny wow. that will uh you know he can bring he will do it and and my mom you know eventually we kind of found her job to be uh i helped her i went with her a cashier in the supermarket in a fancy supermarket um and she also worked there until her retirement moshe vardi professor at rice surprisingly revealed that his father wanted him to become a rabbi as a jewish religious and spiritual leader sometimes a priest This was in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This is a fascinating story. When you got interested in math and science, how was your parents' reaction to your interest? Was it yes, this is natural, this is normal or how how was it? So I think I think my father was a little torn. So I come up from a rabbinic family with a very long rabbinic tradition. Hmm. Of I don't know how many generations of rabbi. My father was actually at the end part of his educational journey was he became a northern rabbi he never had he never had a pulpit he was a teacher he taught judaism mm-hmm. but uh, but he was an officially northern rabbi and his father was and god knows how many generation yeah and uh, so we actually kind of made a deal when I, after i finished high school we made a deal that i would go for one year to rabbinical seminary i see okay and then and then if i want to go to university i can go to university and i said okay that's a fair deal and i went a year for a biblical seminary and didn't change anything i was i was determined to go i want to study physics yeah computer science came a little bit later first yeah. i wanted to study physics i yeah. was really yeah. into science and physics was a hard science so yeah in uh, a particular in the in high school where we were exposed to, we had the last one year of what we call modern physics Mm. And there was relativity theory and and quantum mechanics and this was so absolutely fascinating there was just no no rabbinical school would would able to tear me away from my dream of studying physics <laughs> and that, and so your parents just bowed to your interests and your uh... so that was this okay he said it's fair deal you give it a try for one year but then you decide you say you're going to be at this point i was a bit young when i finished high school i finished high school at age 16 mm. I so see. he said okay in a year you'll be 17 you 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 should decide for yourself after that what you want This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Israel featuring immigrant computer scientists from Israel. Act 3: Persecution. Many of our listeners know that the Jewish people have faced persecution over centuries and over millennia. Sometimes the persecution is overt, like the Holocaust. Sometimes the persecution was embedded in the fabric of society in countries in Europe. We first talked to Moshe Vardi, Professor Ed Rice, who says that his parents, originally from Central Europe, met in a camp for displaced persons. So you mentioned your parents met in a displaced persons camp. Uh, where did your parents grow up, each of them? So both of my parents are from Central Europe, mm. from kind of remnants of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm. So my mother grew up in in Hungary. and she was involved in what's called the Hungarian Holocaust which is a 
the, the very the, the end of the last half of 44 there is a holocaust in, in hungary happens very late yeah. in the late part of 44 yeah. and uh, she lost all of her family except one brother that survived mm. my brother my, my father was born in romania in transylvania Transylvania was an area of, of uh, you know, because remember, we have the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then it split. Yeah. yeah. So Hungary, Hungary was thought that some, some pieces that went to other, other countries belonged to them. Right. So when, when Hungary uh, joins the Axis, they get half of Transylvania, hmm. including the half that where my father lives. So both, both of my parents uh, survived the, what's called the Hungarian Holocaust. Next up is Regina Barzilai, who grew up in Moldavia. Moldavia was one of the countries that was part of the Soviet Republics, or USSR, the communist nations inside USSR. She grew up in the 1970s and 80s. In the 1980s, the USSR was starting to break up, and this severely affected life in Moldavia. We talk about that. And we also talk about the systemic discrimination against Jews that was embedded in the employment system and the political system in Moldavia. Here's Regina Barzilai. The mess started when in my last year of school when, you know, on one hand there was a perestroika and all these changes in how people thought and, you know, kind of this um, taste of real democracy. But on the other hand, in Moldavia, the situation really became terrible because they started fighting for independence and as a result, Russia stopped supporting them economically and the trade between Russia and Moldavia kind of broke up. And... Um, as a result, of a sudden, like from very organized, safe society, it was total mess. It was unsafe to go out after five. Mm. You know, um, even basic things you cannot find in the store. People were without jobs and in masses because lots and lots of factories that were kind of building things in, you know, in collaboration with kind of Russian counterparts in Russia uh, stopped working. So mm. it was... It was really amazing. Within a few months, a society that was functioning became totally non-functional society and everybody were leaving. So the Jews were going to Israel or to, to the United States. You know, Russians were going to the main Russia. Ukrainians were going to Ukraine. So it was, you know, I remember I had this um, phone book and I would cross if the person is kind of out of reach because it was a physical yeah. phone. And all of a sudden, my book became like cross after cross after cross. And... Within very short time, everything changed around us. And I uh, originally, you know, when my parents started talking to me, it was all my family already moved to Israel, all the other fam big family. I was very sad and, you know, I had friends and, you know, I got used and I loved Kishinev. But, but at some point, it really was a new world. It's like you're staying in your, your own city, but it doesn't feel anymore like your own city. So I guess it helped uh, with the transition to the next step. In Kishinev, for somebody of my background, you know, the best type of career that you can imagine. I mean, you can be a teacher, you can, you can do, you can be an engineer, but, you know, the most important part of life was actually to get married and find the right husband. Mm. <laughs> How did you mentally take that? Did you think, yeah, that might be a fine future for me? Or did you think, no, I definitely do not want that future. I'm going to work hard to prevent that from happening. What was your mental approach to that? No, I, I don't know if there's anything wrong with getting married, but the point is that this was a place where 
you know, your career option, forget for a second the marriage, but your career option, what you can do, you know, if I would have stayed there, I would be a math teacher, or maybe I would be some, you know, kind of engineer in some institute or something like this. The, the number of things that I could have done was extremely limited. You know, people, of course, were doing their job and were very sorry about this job. But, you know, I knew that, you know, being a Jew, my likelihood to ever be a scientist was close to zero. I wasn't even considering it as a career. You know, you kind of grew up and, you know, that's what I can get. And I will try to optimize within this set of opportunities. That's how I thought about it. So moving forward in your timeline around uh, age 20, around 1990, your family moved from Moldavia to Israel. Um, this was around the time, as you mentioned earlier, that the USSR was breaking up and living in Moldavia was very, very difficult. And also it was around the time that Moldavia declared its independence as a republic independent of, of USSR. What were the conversations like in your family before making the decision to move? Or was it fairly natural just because everyone else, all your other extended family has moved? It's a natural thing. So everybody moved. <laughs> we were the last one. Everybody were moving. And also at the time... So we kind of decided we are moving, but then this war with uh, Israel and Iraq started. If you remember Saddam Hussein at the time threw some rocket yes. in Israel, yes. so all this mess. So we lived on the kind of empty, <laughs> empty house with everything else somewhere uh, for for months and months, and I didn't know when we actually can move. Um, to Israel, so it was this kind of situation that you are in, that you are not really in one place and not in another place. You are mm -hmm. in in places. It continued for, uh, for for some time, and then eventually we moved. And um, I don't really, you know, remember my thought process. It's just, I just remember this waiting because you you really don't know yeah. what's to come next. <laughs> Yeah, sounds like the family was in limbo for a while. You had um, packed up everything from your old home. You were ready to move to Israel, but then you were kind of stuck in the middle waiting for things to stabilize in Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, the worst part of it, the, the situation in Moldavia was becoming actually worse and worse every day. <laughs> but that's, uh, the, the, it wasn't, you know, it's interesting that when I'm like remembering the, my time there, there's some periods which I really remember in greatest detail. But that period, I kind of remember a gray period and living in an empty house. So at that time, you had, I presume you had already finished high schooling. Uh, what was your educational status at that time? So I finished high school and I did, I think, one year in the university. I was studying math. Uh, I did I one see. year in the university. And then, you know, when we kind of declared that we are moving, I had to withdraw from university and we were sitting and waiting until I can actually mm -hmm. move. Mm. So the the university in Moldavia that you went to, what was the admission process to that? Uh, like, was there an entrance exam or was it just based on school grades? So uh, you need to do several entrance exams to get in. And it was some of these exams were written, some of them were oral exams. And uh, I got a gold medal. Gold medal means uh, that you get, you know, five, which was the highest score in all the subjects. And, and if you get it all in an external examination, then you can actually get into the university if you get five on your first entrance exam. So you don't need to do three if you have this gold medal and you have the first entrance exam with number five, then you are in. And... Um, the assumption was that 
if you're doing the oral exam, it's much easier to kind of kill you because you are Jew. So you really need to make sure that you're passing the written exam with full grade. And that's what mm. I did. And it was very, very stressful to make sure that I do get this full grade. So you, uh, you knew that one particular kind of exam, the oral exam, would be much harder for you because of your ethnicity and because of your being Jewish. And so you had to excel in one and that, that created some amount of pressure. And got this gold medal, which was like an obsession from yeah, early age, because you had, because this gold medal, it's actually sort of your entrance to, to the university. Right. I mean, there were lots of universities right. and a kind of um, institution of high learning. Some of them were really not great, right. so you could get somewhere. But if you want to right. select where you want to go, at least to some extent, you really have to be uh, to get you know this gold medal was helping so that's why i was really working very hard to get it act 4 conflict and wars in israel Conflicts and wars have, unfortunately, become a part of the reality and daily life in Israel, often a fight for survival against some of the neighboring nations. Israel has seen conflicts nearly every decade since its formation, from the Arab-Israel War in 1948, to Palestinian attacks in the 1950s, Suez Crisis against Egypt in 1956, the Six-Day War in 1967, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the Israel-Lebanese conflicts of 1980s, two of our guests were in this war, we'll talk about that, the Intifadas in 1980s through 2000s, the Lebanon War in 2006, a previous episode in this podcast series discussed the experience of this Lebanon war from inside Lebanon, and more recently the Gaza conflicts since 2008. Israel has had mandatory military service for both men and women. Two of our guests fought in Israel's wars. And even when they were not fighting, war certainly affected their daily lives. Moshe Vardi, professor at Rice and Godel Prize winner, describes fighting on the front lines of the Israel-Lebanon War of the 1980s and of being whisked within a space of 48 hours from Palo Alto in the U.S. to the front lines of war in Israel and Lebanon. Here's Moshe. When you were growing up um, in the kibbutz and then later in the in the village uh, Moshav, um, there were quite a few conflicts in the nation of Israel. And Israel is a pretty small nation that you cannot be very far away from where the conflicts are happening in the 50s and the 60s. Did those affect your your growing up as a child and your family itself? So 1967, we had the, what's called the 67 war. Yeah. So I was... Before that, we had the issue of dealing with, with terrorism, with the PLO, IDF. 67 was a very dramatic period. Uh, so it was it was a war, but it ended up uh, very, very fast. We call, this, we call it in, in Israel the Six-Day War. Six-Day War, yep. And so that was kind of the first... Uh, there was another conflict in, in, uh, in 56, but I was, I was way too young, so I have... Uh, I don't have memories of that. What is the Suez crisis versus Egypt? This is the Suez crisis. This is 1956, and I was very young, so I don't have memories of that. But 67 was a big deal. And um, a few years later was another major conflict, which was the 73, the 73 war. Mm. So two, two major conflicts. 67, I was still a teenager. Mm. Uh, 
73, uh, I was already at that point. So the way Israel has something which is similar to the ROTC. Okay, I see. Uh-huh. Which is where somehow you combine military service with, with academic study. So the normal trajectory in Israel is you finish high school at age 18, mm-hmm. you go and you serve in the military for three years, and then you go back to, you go back to, you go to college. Right. But uh, you can ask to start your academic studies. So in this case, it was interleaving of academia and military service. I see. So you were already uh, in your in the bachelor's program by then, by '73. So I started. I st- remember I went one year to rabbinical seminary. Correct. Yes. And then at age 17, I started the bachelor's degree. Uh-huh. Okay. Then after, in the next summer, I had to do boot camp. I see. And then I go to another year of college. And then in the second summer, I also do military training. Mm-hmm. And then the seventy year, the seventy three year, seventy three war started, right? And I had to go, and I was called to serve during the war. Uh huh. So you were on so the front I lines. Was, I was in in active duty mm. in in the war of seventy three. After I finished the war, I finished college. I went to I went to graduate school did my master and PhD in Israel, went to the United States, yep. came back to visit, and there was another war, it was the 82 war. Mm. So you sum up all this time, all together, I spent about five years in the military. I see. So you served in the 82 war as well? Yeah. yeah. So, so I presume you saw action on the front lines? Uh... I saw action on the front line in 82, yes. 82. Yep. How was that like? I mean, you... You're a scientist and engineer by profession, and you're out there holding weapons. And... You you have to compartmentalize. You put your science and engineering on the side, and you just do your military thing. Mm. And there were other, I'm sure there were other um, army personnel too who had essentially come away from their regular lives as, you know, and other professions were serving in the military. So, so Israel, the way it works in Israel, you have many people who are reservists. Mm-hmm. So, uh, especially for men, you do your military duty, uh, let's say 18 to 21, you do three years. Yeah. And then you stay, usually about your mid-40s, and you serve in the reserve. And it's about one month a year. It's a significant amount of service. It's yeah. about one month a year. Yeah. So, so the... the, the um, the way the IDF works is you have what we call the regular the regular army. And the army there does not mean like here. Here you have army and navy and, uh, right. and air force. Army means the military, the whole thing. But you have people who are on either regular, so either they are draftees who, who do the three years of service, or the people who sign up for more. So they're volunteer, they, they, they stay for more. Right. Or they are reservists. And the bulk of the IDF is a reservist. So, so these are really, you know, the, especially all men in Israel, uh, all men up to a certain age, are still in, in service. Mm-hmm. So this, this unit was a unit of all the reservists. I was still unique that I arrived from, I flew from the United States, and 
within about 48 hours I was in Lebanon. It was a very abrupt transition, wow. abrupt transition from Palo Alto <laughs> to, to Lebanon. <laughs> This is in 1982, right? Yeah. Even women served in the Israel's military. Here is Tal Rabin describing her experiences in the Israeli army in 1970s and 1980s. When you were in college and uh, in those years, was uh, was military service required of women? Yes, but before that, after my ar- after my high school, of course, I went into the army. I was two years in the army. I'm uh, an officer, and uh, I uh, had uh, a lot of luck at the time. Uh, women's positions in the army were terrible. Most of them were secretarial jobs. This has changed a lot in the past 40 years. But there were a few jobs then that were better. And luckily for me, after being a secretary for a time, I managed to go to officer's course. And then I worked as a social worker, which was a much more fulfilling position. So you served two years in the army and you did social work uh, and you left as an officer. Did you ever have to go on the field? Uh, because Israel had a lot of conflicts during that time. Part of the change is also that women were all in non-combat uh, positions, which was true for me as well. And of course, to this day, maybe women are not 50% in combat. We should not exaggerate that things have changed completely. But... Um, So I never went on the field, of course. There were there are two things that I do want to say about it. Mm-hmm. One is that during my officer's course, the first Lebanon war happened. Yep. Yep. So they took us. There was a mess. It was a mess. They took us from the officer's course and put us on the border with Lebanon mm-hmm. with lists of names of guys And we had to mark going in, not going in, going in, which is insane to think that this is the records that they have of who was going into battle. And I don't know what happened with those lists and how effective they were, but this is what it was. And it was on these big um, computer sheets that was one line white, one line green, one line white. It was... A, And we, and we, all these women, we just stood there, girls, what women, girls, and marked these guys who were going in. So that is one thing, my close, closest as I got to, to something related to the war. Yeah. And the second thing is that my base at the time was in what's in the occupied territories mm. beyond the um, 67 lines. Mm. And... This meant that as soldiers serving in those areas, we had to uh, have a gun and walk around with a gun. And just to tell you how things changed over time during my military service. At the beginning, I lived in Jerusalem, so I could go in the occupied territories through Nablus and uh, so on. I could drive, and I would drive with this little rickety um, beaten bug that my parents had that could break at any moment. I would drive without any fear through these areas mm. to the base. But during my military service, the Intifada started. Mm. 
-hmm. And at that point, I could not drive anymore through these zones, definitely not by myself without any protection. And then I would take the bus inside um, Israel territory, and then there would be a pickup place, and we would go in an armed bus to the base. So this is the deterioration of the relationships that happened. In fact, in a very, very, I, I served in that base for one year. So it tells you how in one year it went from a situation that I felt 100% safe to a situation where I was just not allowed to do it anymore, mm. which of course is a telling story about the situation yeah. in Israel. Yeah. So, so in the 1980s, as you mentioned, the Lebanon conflicts and then the first intifada affected you certainly. Did it affect your father and your mother and their jobs and careers? No. It, it, listen, it affected every Israeli, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. There were bombings uh, and, uh, and of course, your political opinions. You, you might have not been happy with what was going on and what the government was doing. So in that sense, it's a small country. It's not like the U.S. that something happens one place and people don't know anything elsewhere. Yeah. You know about everything. Uh, Israelis are very involved in their political lives. And mm. also because it's just... A fact of life, right? If, if something's heating up in the Gaza uh, border and you have friends who have sons who are there, it affects you. Everything right. affects you. And right. of course, as I said, we are not the only side who's being affected by these right. things. People right. on the other side are being affected as well. Right. But my parents' jobs and so on. Oh, you know what? My mother. My mother the office of the uh, attorney generals where she worked was in East Jerusalem on a street mm. called Salah Adin. And at the beginning also, she could go there really without any trouble and any worries. But later on, it sometimes this was tense. Mm. Oh, and another thing also, we love to eat in uh, the old city, in the east city. We were really people who enjoyed this cultural mix that existed. And these things did decrease with time. Can you describe a little bit the, the ethos and the thinking among like your neighbors and your friends about just this instability that exists because of the conflicts? Uh, it, it's very hard to like draw parallels with certainly in the US, we don't have that. I mean, we, we don't have these years and years upon uh, of conflicts. And certainly in other parts of the world, this doesn't exist. But from what you're describing, I'm understanding that it just became a part of uh, your thinking that yes, there is a conflict in the background. Can you describe a little bit how you get used to that? I'm not sure you do. <laughs> it's not exactly in the background. And as I said, depending on your political views, you might really also be very, very unhappy mm. about what's going on and the fact that this is not being resolved in a proper way and so on. But I think that um, for Israelis, really, it's part of the life. And not in a way that, okay, yes, it's some process going in the background. It is up there, up front. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Israel, featuring immigrant computer scientists from Israel. Act 5. Language. Language in school, on the streets, and at home. 
and cultural differences and cultural shocks. First up, we continue with Tal Rabin, professor at UPenn and head of research at Algorand Foundation. She grew up in Israel in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. She talks about language. What language was uh, your school education in, especially science and math? And then what language did you speak at home? What language did you speak on the street with your friends? All Hebrew. And I have to tell you that I also studied all my math in the university at Hebrew, in Hebrew. And sometimes now in class, suddenly I'm like, what's this word in English? I have no idea what to say. And then I have to ask the students and God knows what they think of me. But uh, Hebrew throughout... Of course, I learned English while I was on sabbaticals here in the U.S., but it was never spoken at home. We only, only spoke Hebrew. So by the time you finish your bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D., essentially you had only spoken and done work in Hebrew, not in English? I only spoke in Hebrew all the time. I spoke in English only when I was here in third grade, in eighth grade, and I did one year of college when I was 18. So those were the only three years that I spoke English. Mm. But at the time, there was no, there wasn't a lot of TV and shows and there was no chat or anything. My life was in, it was in Hebrew. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Now, when you think of ideas, would you say you think in Hebrew still, or do you think sometimes in English? Or I always wonder, and I always try to test myself. So I sometimes realize that when I type a phone number in English, in on the phone, not in English, which I'm reading from the website, I say the numbers in English. But I think that my thinking is in Hebrew, still. that I still think in Hebrew. Yeah. Um, definitely. Definitely, definitely, when I'm thinking about my relationships, my conversations with people that I speak Hebrew to, but even if I speak to them in English, when I'm sort of analyzing them, that's in Hebrew. Mm. And I'm different in Hebrew. When I speak to a Hebrew speaker, I'm not the same. What do you mean? I don't know to explain it, but I know that I'm not the same. Something about it... um, I express myself definitely better in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. My vocabulary is richer. I have more um, phrases that I say, and I think they enrich the way that I can speak. But also, I think somehow my personality is more rooted in that Hebrew, and I come across slightly different. And then we rewind a bit to the 1950s and 60s. Moshe Vardi, who was a child in Israel during those decades, talks about language. Your schooling, your high schooling, middle schooling, and then also your bachelor's was, what language, uh, what languages did you use, uh, spoken language? Oh, it's all, it's all, it's all Hebrew. It's all Hebrew. It's so all Hebrew. At what all point, and, and I, I presume you learned English on the side too as a second language. So, so Israel, English is taught as a, as a second language, mm. starting from, I think like maybe fifth grade. So it's, it's very important. Mm. Mm-hmm. And English is a primary uh, foreign language that people in Israel study. Mm-hmm. So most Israelis speak the semi-decent, semi-decent English. Okay, even you know they always said some some English. I mean, after that, today also the people later watch uh, movies and TV, so there are other way to study English. But at the time, mm-hmm. that's where you studied English. Um, in fact, even though it's not English, but I learned to read the Roman alphabet before I learned to read the Hebrew alphabet. 
because uh, we had an, an atlas. I don't know in what language it was, but it was in, yeah. in, in, in written in Roman Roman letters. Uh-huh. I wanted to know what is this country, what is this country, and I asked my mother to tell me the letters. So I learned to read actually uh, the Roman alphabet before the Hebrew alphabet. When you think research, when you think of research ideas, do you think in Hebrew or do you think in English? No, probably mixed. Probably mixed. I know when I say it's always even in my thought it's in English. It's mixed. I don't even know. You know, I'm I'm now I'm kind of fully bilingual. Yeah. Um, how long? How long? How long did the transition to using English take? Was it like gradual after you came to the U.S. for your postdoc? You come to the United States. You know, it's it's an immersion. First of all, you spend uh, most of your day on other people who. Even though Stanford, Stanford, when I was a postdoc, it was very international, of course. Right. But but English is the lingua franca. Everybody speaks English. That's your common language. So, so you basically start when you use the language, you know, at all times, and then you write you write papers. Of course, you write them in English from the very beginning. My master thesis yeah. was written in English. My PhD had to be in Hebrew hmm. because they say it's a Hebrew university. Your your dissertation yeah. has to be. In, my master thesis was in English. But my my um, PhD, my PhD, doctoral dissertation was was in Hebrew, hmm. but I have not really written much Hebrew since then. So I'm, okay. Okay. I'm not very smooth today with writing Hebrew actually. And I asked Moshe about the clash of cultures after he immigrated to the U.S. in 1981. Did he have to adapt to the U.S. from the Israeli culture that he grew up in? He revealed something very unique about the way Israelis interact and talk. So in 81, you finished your PhD, and then you immigrated to the U.S. Uh, to immigrated do a, to the U.S. I went to do a postdoc in the United States. Uh, to do a postdoc at Stanford. But culturally, were there any changes? Uh, were there any dramatic things that you had to adapt to after you came to move to the U.S. in 81? Or was it fairly smooth and you really didn't have to think about it much? Uh, there is, you always have to kind of to, to adapt. And... Uh, there is a kind of cultural gap between Israelis and, and the Americans. So Israelis tend to be very direct. So the, the Israeli are called, um, there is a term which we use called Saba. And mm. It's referred to the fruit of the, what we call the, the, it's a cactus with, with fruits, cactus pear. I think it's called cactus pear. Mm-hmm. And it's a fruit, but very thorny. Mm-hmm. So the the the, the parable is that uh, Israeli are sweet on the inside and thorny on the outside. So Israel to be much more direct. I mean, United States the culture is there is especially the, there is a I would say the Protestant culture. Yeah. I mean, it's just all very indirect, and and then Israelis come and they are they are direct. Okay, and. Uh, here at, at the university, I call things the way I see them, and uh. very often the higher administration is not always happy with my my direct criticism. Do you find yourself interacting nowadays? Do you find yourself interacting differently with um, your your relatives and friends who are Israeli or Jewish versus you know your other professional colleagues who are not? So, you know, after you do learn to kind of to, to adapt, you do learn that, uh, you know, I had to develop a, a bit more diplomatic skills. 
appropriate for, uh, for this culture. In fact, I had the Israeli postdoc. Uh-huh. And he complained some, at some point that I was not direct enough. <laughs> he said, you know, you just have to tell me things the way they are. You have been too diplomatic with me. <laughs> and so I said, well, maybe I've become more diplomatic than I realized. But, uh-huh. uh, but again, if you ask people, usually they would, they would mention, you know, Right, we don't have many Israelis at rice. Mm. They will mention my 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 directness, I think. Mm. But I think it has been it has been moderated after many years of living in the United States. Yeah. And Regina Barzilai, uniquely placed as a double immigrant, first from Moldavia to Israel in 1990, and then Israel to the U.S. in 1997, I asked her to compare her two immigrant experiences with each other. So um, I want to ask a little bit about your experience, to compare your experience of the first immigration from Moldavia to Israel and then your second immigration from Israel to U.S. They were under very different circumstances. And of course, the countries are also very different. Did you Do you feel that the first immigration prepared you for, again, the culture shock that you would face in your second immigration? I, I didn't think of it as an immigration because I was planning to go back to Israel and still my family is in Israel and very connected to Israel. So I cannot mm-hmm. really consider them. I'm, I, I, you know, I have dual citizenship, but I'm kind of in between the two countries, which is quite different situation with Moldavia that I never visited since we left. Um, yeah. But the first immigration, it was really a culture shock. And part of it is because, you know, the country was really flooded with these new immigrants, which were poor, which looked very different, which, you know, didn't have kind of the Polish of, uh, you know, people from more Western society. And... Uh, you know, it's kind of bizarre to think, but there were a lot of people, um, you know, on one hand, there were a lot of people who helped, like really helped. And I still remember there was a neighbor living near my parents' house. When, when I visited yeah. on the weekend, I had to write some very long paper in Hebrew. And I just came and asked the lady who lived nearby to help me, uh, like to mm. make sure that I write, you know, in the right language. And, and she helped. She just sat with me and helped and I, mm. you know, with the paper. People helped in many, many ways. But when I came to the States, you know, I came in a different class. I came as, you know, educated person who, you know, whose at least husband is in PhD. I was going to PhD. It's all different things. When we went to Israel, I was in the very bottom of, you know, kind of social, um, uh, you know, hierarchy. Uh, In a sense, you know, you know, people would, uh, you know, can say to you something because you're Russian, which was kind of funny because I wasn't Russian, but, uh, you know, you're mm-hmm. Russian. People will make jokes about your accent and this would be mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, you know, you would be considered kind of some non-refined uh, person. And, you know, one story that I remember and I cannot leave it from my memory to this day that I went to visit... Uh, with my then husband, some friends of his who were from very educated family. And when, you know, when we were chatting, a really beautiful house and a lot of books. And uh, I took uh, the uh, newspaper, which was like New York Times. It wasn't New York Times. It was the Israeli newspaper. And and it had the culture supplement. And I started reading it. At the time, I already, you know, was doing my master's. I was a teacher. So my Hebrew was, you know, pretty reasonable. 
And then the mother of um, his friend, who was a very nice woman, came to me and said, wow, Regina, I cannot believe it that you're reading it. I said, why? So it's about culture. Like the expectation is that you would not even look at it. You know, like people kind of discount you because of, you know, how you look like or because of your class. I didn't feel it in the United States at all. And this was the hardest piece to cope because you are always in somewhat you know, diminishing uh, role and you need to prove yourself that you right. are like others. And, um, and, 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 and I think that in some ways, you know, in the United States, at least, you know, that's how I perceive it, there is not much pressure that you forget who you are and you're going to be all part of the same. You know, that there is like Chinatown and people in Chinatown can, you know, speak their language, have their shops. Well, in Israel, due to the fact how the country was built, that, you know, if everybody will stay the same, then there will be no um, nationality. Uh, there is this push to kind of be like Israeli. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't feel it when I came to the U.S. I, I felt I could totally stay the same. Though, though, uh, there were some really funny, um, funny uh, parts that, you know, but, but, but at this point, I just laugh at them. I, I don't feel in any way, you know, bad about them. And um, the funniest story that happened to me uh, was I went with... Uh, one of the faculty, we went to a conference uh, in LA and um, we went to pick up, you know, we wanted to take a cab to the, to the hotel. So yeah. I went and asked the person in the information in the airport, you know, where, where the taxis are. And that person started talking to me and he talks very, very slowly, you know, one word mm-hmm. a minute. And, okay. uh, I, you know, I, I am trying, and, and then my, uh, you know, um, my partner who was with me, uh, this professor, he, he he kind of interrupted and said, no, 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 just tell me. And then the guy starts to speaking normally. The, and I felt, wow, he's really rude interrupting because maybe the person has a disability. And But then the person started, you know, speaking totally okay. And it's like, what happened? Uh, and the guy, because I have an accent so that I cannot understand normal English. When I was away 15 years, Professor at MIT. And uh, the book that really resonates with me, uh, and when I read it, it was like as if, you know, somebody yeah. wrote parts of my life is a book, Americana, uh, by Ngozi, which describes, you know, this experience when you are an immigrant, but you're an educated immigrant. And she describes it as like a story in the book, which is very parallel to it, that she, when she entered some college, uh, uh, she, uh, not she, I mean, the, the heroine of that uh, book comes and tries to uh, talk to admission officers, and they also talk to her in a very slow and bizarre way until she realizes that they actually talk normally to all the other people in the queue. <laughs> uh, so, so there are these funny things, but I never yeah. see them very personally. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting always thinking of the assumptions and prejudices that others have about immigrants. And I think that's where, um, that's where a lot of this comes from. And Regina Barzilai describes the challenges of not knowing English and yet giving a talk at a conference in Spain. But I have to tell you that when I went and I gave a talk, what happened to me, uh, you know, I gave a talk in this workshop um, that, you know, I couldn't really speak English. I mean, I can sort of speak English, but I, I could write mm. English but I could, or read, but, but my conversational English was on the weaker side. 
And what I did uh, when I prepared my talk, for every slide, uh, you know, together with my advisor, Mike, uh, his name is Michael El Haddad, together with my advisor, I kind of wrote on every slide what I need to say. It was like... The script, yes. Yeah, yeah, so I wrote the script with these physical slides, which I had in my box, and I learned it, you know, I truly learned it by heart, and I would repeat it like 10,000 times to make sure that I'm smooth. So, mm. you know, and, you know, now, you know, you give so many talks, like tomorrow I'm supposed to give a talk, and NCI, ah, you know, I didn't even start putting the slides together. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but I spent like days preparing for the talk at any rate so i'm arriving to this workshop and i see everybody giving such a fantastic talks and then i'm standing up and i start you know going through my slides and then in the middle of the presentation i forget the next word and i stand, <laughs> and, you know everybody look at me and i'm quiet and it's uh, uh, maybe they saw that I want just to make a point, but I really got stuck in the middle of the sentence and I couldn't remember what is the next thing to say. And then at some point I decided that I should move forward since I cannot stand there quietly. So I just moved to the next slide where I remember what I need to say and continued my presentation. And this was like, I felt it's horrifying. I felt that everybody saw that I was total, total moron. But it was not the end. The, the next thing is that they told me that I have to be on the panel. So I didn't realize what panel exactly means. And then they put me with the various researchers who were like senior researchers. I was just a master's right. student. Um, right. And you're supposed to speak English <laughs> on the panel. But luckily, in front of me, there was a man who just couldn't stop talking. And the whole, he pretty much took the whole panel. And God bless <laughs> him, I didn't have to speak. So I felt really terrible. I really felt that I'm a failure. I was an embarrassment. And um, uh, I, I really, you know, I saw that it was pretty much the end of my academic career. But though I liked it very much, but I saw this is the end. Mm. And how did you cope in the days after that when you have this kind of negative feeling that, hey, you know, what I did here was a complete bust, uh, but really it's not. Right? I mean, I think most of the presentation went fine. How did you mentally cope with that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it takes time. Time actually, you know, helps you to address all the problems that you have in life. So, you know, at the time you go out and um, the, the only thing that I did, the lesson that I learned, I, you know, the, the amount of time that I spend preparing on the talk, for my next talk, I triple the time. And I actually land every slide independently. If somebody shows me the slides, I know what to say. Obviously, my English became better when I moved to the States, but this was my main lesson. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Israel, featuring immigrant computer scientists from Israel. Act 6. The Reluctant Immigrants to the U.S. Our three guests moved from Israel to the U.S. in 1981, 1994, and 1997. I was surprised to hear all of them say that they'd not really thought of themselves as immigrants to the U.S., not because the culture of Israel and the U.S. are similar, there are in fact many differences, but because all the three of them had planned to return to Israel at some point of time. First up is Tal Rabin, who moved from Israel to the U.S. in 1994 for her postdoc and has since then stayed on in the U.S. for the past 28 years and counting. 
moving forward to the you're nearing the end of your PhD. This is late 1980s, well, uh, early 1990s, as you're finishing your PhD in 1994 from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, and you're considering next step career options. What were the options you were considering at that point? Oh, at this point, it was clear that I was going to do research. So, in fact, I was hoping to come back to Israel as faculty. And in order to do that, I needed to go and do a postdoc for two years. Mm. And I went to MIT. I did not fully understand that my then husband had no intention of coming back to Israel. Mm. And even when I finished my postdoc and he said that we were not going back, I didn't understand that this was permanent. And so I applied to IBM Research because I thought I will be going back in two, three, four years. Mm. And that's why I didn't apply to university position in the U.S. But my then husband, his name is Boaz, he was very unhappy about the political situation in Israel and the occupation and so on and had no intention of going back, not mm. when I finished my postdoc and not two, three, four years later. Mm. So that is... Uh, why I stayed in the U.S. And in fact, that choice, because I didn't go to university, I ended up at IBM, and that was an amazing place to be. We had a fantastic team, um, one of the best teams in the world in cryptography. And uh, we came there, we were all new. There was an original group who was more senior and it all left, and we were a new bunch of hires. I always said that I felt that we were like little ducklings that our mother duck had left us. And we started this group and uh, we became amazing, which was really nice. Turning to your timeline, so I want to take you back to when you're finishing your, your postdoc at MIT and you're considering next steps. And you mentioned earlier that you wanted to go back to Israel, but that your then husband did not. And that's one of the reasons why you, you started at IBM. And then you stayed at IBM for quite a while. You stayed there from uh, 1996 to uh, 2019. Did, did you ever go back to your thought of, well, you know, I, I want to go back to Israel still? Or did that just like fade away after a while? I'm not a person like that. When I want to go back to Israel, I will go back to Israel. <laughs> this is how I live my life. I'm in the here and now on everything. Uh, so, no, I can tell it as a fact that I wanted to go back, but now I'm not thinking about it. It's not because it faded. It's just because I'm not thinking about it now. And when I'll think about it and I'll want to, I'll do it. And now I have two girls here, so everything is different. Uh, but it sounds like there is still a part of your mind that desires and wishes to go back. My heart, it will always be in Israel. And... As I told you, I'm an Israeli through and through in my personality, in the way I form relationships, everything about me is Israeli. And whether I'll go back or not, I don't know. But maybe when I get older, I'll spend more time there. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out when we have this interview in 10 years, I'll tell you. <laughs> you were born in the U.S., so officially you were a U.S. citizen, and then you went back. Did you ever feel different from the other kids who were born and uh, born in Israel? Or was it just like, oh, you know, I'm an Israeli? 
I'm completely an Israeli. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm an Israeli through and through. And even now that I've probably lived in the U.S. more than half my life, I'm still Israeli. Next up is Moshe Vardi, who moved from Israel to the U.S. in 1981 for his postdoc, and then stayed on in the U.S. for the next 41 years and counting. So returning to your timeline, so 83, you finished your postdoc, and then after that, you spent a couple of years as a visiting scientist at IBM Research and also research associate at Stanford. And then in 85, you officially joined IBM Research at Almaden. So around the time you're finishing your postdoc, did you consider returning to Israel? Oh, yeah, I was, I was already, I had, a, I had a, an offer, I was all ready to go back. Mm. But I did have a relationship, and I had to make a kind of a life, one of these life, really life decision okay and i would i did talk to my to to my partner and we decided do we does it make sense to bring her to israel and uh, eventually i decided it wasn't fair to ask her to i was already living there and it wasn't fair to ask her to uproot her life so it didn't make sense so i made a decision what was at the time one of the most difficult decisions for me ever was to stand united states and third is Regina Barzilai, who moved from Israel to the U.S. in 1997 as a housewife and has since then stayed on in the U.S. for the past 25 years and counting. My um, then-husband uh, decided, so, so he went to Cornell. He was a PhD student at Cornell, and he started there before. I was still in Israel. He started at Cornell. I see. And then I... Um, Decide, you know, then I, at some point, I finished my master's and then I had to go to Ithaca, New York, where, you know, you've been as well. And I was a yes. wife. So I was a wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of rented an apartment, which was very, it's near the airport, which is like far from the city. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting there the whole day mm-hmm. with my own thoughts and thinking what I want to do next. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and at some point, so I found a job as a programmer and I was doing it for a few months, but I realized it's not what I want to do. Um, and yeah. um, and uh, and then I uh, was approached, or I approached, I don't remember how it came about, but the advisor of my master's advisor, Michael el was Professor Kathy McEwen, who worked at Columbia and we somehow connected. She actually saw this paper. She luckily didn't hear me presenting, but she saw the paper. The paper was kind of getting some traction. And she suggested me to apply to Columbia. And I applied in the middle of the year. I started in Columbia in January, in January 1998. Mm. And I just Mm. moved there and started my PhD. Mm. That's a very interesting story, a very unusual way of entering the PhD program because the typical story is do your bachelor's or do your master's and then you apply for a PhD. You spend this one year essentially... Um, bored, as you said, right? <laughs> it was maybe half a year that I was bored. It's half not really bored. I was working as a programmer, but I was thinking, is right. that what I want to do? And uh, right. uh, I decided it's not what I want to do. And then I moved to New York and started my PhD. Right. And you asked me earlier the question, you know, did I, you know, if I would not end up being in the States, you know, uh, would I decide to do a PhD? I, I don't know, you know, but it was just happen. Mm. I was in a situation and I made a choice. Act 7. It's a chance I started this research. 
Even the most distinguished careers have humble beginnings. In fact, even random beginnings at times. Now, if you're a student, you might think, I like Area X because maybe it's a hot area with a lot of jobs. Maybe I really like the area or, you know, other reasons that you may try to rationalize your preference for a particular area. Yet how we choose an area to specialize in or even the act of starting to do research can be random choices, often driven by chance occurrences outside of one's control. This was true for all three of our guests. First is Tal Rabin, who chanced upon the topic that eventually became her career. So then you you go to the master's and then how do you choose the topic that you're working on? Is it, Do you take to your topic naturally or...? It's very interesting that you're asking about it because just recently I got the Stock Test of Time Award, the 30-year Test of Time Award. This is for my master's work. And Michael Ben-Or, who was my advisor, just gave me that problem. I knew nothing. And I had to read around and so on, and I worked on it. And when we got the award, in fact... It's not that I didn't know it before, but I sent him an email and I said, you'd really changed my life. I mean, you set the course of my life by just giving me that question because it made me want to do these things and the area, everything about it. And I'm grateful to him. Yes, yet again, chance. But it was a moment in my life that really there was a split, there was a fork in the road. And it was just that, giving me that question to work on. And so you got that question from your advisor and you, as you said, you you don't have any background, you're looking into it. What were some of the feelings in your mind, you know, that I have to read a whole lot of stuff? How do I even start this? How did you navigate that? You know, it's lucky for me. This was 1986. How much a lot of stuff were there? was there? There wasn't much, okay? In this thing, there was one paper. Mm. I managed to read it. Mm. And, uh, and then really it was uh, trying to think, but these were very new days of this area. Mm. And uh, these papers sort of launched this area, which now is sort of known as multi-party computations. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot to read. What excited you most about this life of research? Very early on in your master's as you started doing research, what was it that made you think, hmm, this could be a career for me? Something exciting about finding out something that wasn't known before, that only you know, that only you know for a moment. The thrill of discovering new things. Yes. And the effort that is exerted to reach it. That it's not a trivial thing, you know, that you had to invest a lot of time, a lot of thought in it. And suddenly it's there. I remember that moment when I solved this problem. I I know where I was sitting. And this is, I don't know how many years ago, I can't calculate. But I was sitting in the kitchen, in my parents' kitchen next to the radiator. I remember this because Mm -hmm. it was such a meaningful moment in my life. And how did you react at that moment when you discovered? I, I was thinking looks like I solved it. And it's funny, I was uh, studying with a friend of mine and he was sitting across the table and I turned to him and I said, you know, I think I solved my problem. Mm. I remember this whole thing. Next is Regina Barzilai. During my bachelor's degree, I, I had an exam, I had a class, I remember it was called numerical analysis. 
and yeah. um, we had to walk in the lab because we did I did clearly right. I didn't have a computer at home so you know I this was the first time I did MATLAB and um, I start I, I took this class and then what happened was I uh, you know I did my um, you know I taught one year and I liked it and then I started teaching the second year I already graduated you know I had a degree I graduated and then I realized that actually I don't quite see myself teaching until the end of my biological life um, because you know it's the same material so you whatever you teach this year then you teach the same book next year you know in Israel at least at the time there were clear rules you know which materials you could use so it's not like you can select a book and teach according to whatever you like you, you know there's a textbook you're teaching based on the textbook and then I realized, you know, maybe it's not what I want to do at all. Um, uh, it's fine. I don't mind teaching and doing something else, but not just teaching all the time the same stuff. And, uh, and at the time, I was trying kind of to discover if I can go, because in my university, math and computer science were the same department. And I was right. actually asking, can I, you know, is it possible for me to study or to take classes or do something in computer science? And they told you, because you already graduated with undergrad from our department, you cannot take undergraduate classes, but you can sign up for master's in computer science. And that's how I ended up going to master's in computer science. And they told me you can take the same classes that you wanted to take, but you just need to write a thesis. And... Um, I said, okay, and um, it was at the time a small university, and I was looking around and thinking, you know, who will take me to write a thesis? And, you know, today we, of course, advise our students that you need to look at, you know, what kind of papers a professor writes and um, right. uh, how are your research interests match with them. I just remember I liked my teacher in computer architecture, and I, I really liked him. And I asked him, is it possible that you take me, you know, as your student? And he told me, yeah, but my research is in natural language processing. I said, okay. You know, I had no clue what is natural language processing. I said, okay, why not? And that's how I started doing research. So that was your first taste of research. You did no research in your bachelor's, but because you wanted to study computer science, you started working with this person. Forced to do a thesis. That's the beginning. Mm. Because before that, I never thought of doing research again. I was in this mm. mentality, I'm going to be a teacher until mm. I tried it. And, yeah. uh, and, and at that point, I, just, I was pretty much forced to do the thesis because there was no other way for me to study computer science. And um, that's how I end up selecting natural English processing. And Moshe Vardi, Godel Prize winner and Nuth Prize winner, talks about how he selected his first problems. When was your first experience with research in computer science? So the master was uh, a two year. Master was two years, and you're supposed to first year was mostly finding a, a, a taking courses and trying to, to define a, a research project. And then the second year is you still take courses, but you do your research project, you write a master thesis, and you're done. And so I started in 1976, and then in the in the spring I take a, a theory seminar. Mm -hmm. In a theory seminar, we just have to we had to read papers and give a presentation. And the paper ends up with some questions. And uh, 
the question sounded me very interesting, and I, I go to the professor. I said, this is a really interesting question. I'd like to think about it. He said, yeah, I'll be happy to, to advise you on this question. That's how it started. Mm -hmm. So the questions were there in the paper, and the, essentially my master thesis was trying to to answer these questions from the from the paper left open. So you didn't have much of an experience doing research while you were in the BSc program. It was only no, after the nothing, MSc nothing. Program. The BSc was actually the physics was a very special major. It was it was such a the the course requirement was so high yeah. that it it was considered what they call expanded major. I see. So, so you could basically, you didn't have to take a minor. Mm. So essentially I took, it, it, it was as if I took a major and two minors because I did also a minor in computer science on top of expanded major. Mm. Mm. But there was no, I had no, no research experience at the time. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Israel, featuring immigrant computer scientists from Israel. Act 8, computing in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The 1960s and 70s were prehistoric times for computer science. Moshe Vardi did his schooling in Israel in the 1960s and completed his bachelor's in Israel in 1974 and his PhD also in Israel in 1981. He talks of his earliest memory of programming and computers when the entire university celebrated the upgrading of memory of the mainframe and the president came to celebrate. Listen on. And I did go after that to the academic bookstore mm -hmm. and found another a, a manual of Algol W. Mm -hmm. And I knew Algol W back and forth without ever writing. I never wrote a program in Algol W. <laughs> but I read the manual cover to cover, and I mastered Algol, Algol W at the time, but I never wrote a single program in Algol W. Yeah. So at that point, I was very clear that I, I want to study computer science. Hmm. But the field was still, academ academically, was very, very young. In fact, the, yeah. uh, the Barrel University did not have a major in computer science. Mm -hmm. They only had a minor in computer science. Mm. So I majored in physics and minor in computer science. And this is very early days of the computational era, late 1960s, early 1970s, like you so said. So I remember where they had a big event that uh, the, the president of the university came to drink champagne mm. when the mainframe was upgraded <laughs> into one one megabyte. <laughs> one megabyte. <laughs> one megabyte was a, such a big event that the whole industry of the university came to celebrate Everest's milestone. Oh. Then the mainframe now has one megabyte of memory. <laughs> one megabyte is unimaginable today. Um, one yeah. megabyte of memory. And the mainframe had one megabyte of memory. <laughs> and there was an event, not that the, the sysadmins were celebrating. It was a university, I said, the leadership of the university came to celebrate this one megabyte event. What was the first computer that you used? I think the first computer I used was the one in Tel Aviv University during this uh, two-week course, and I think it was CDC, yeah, maybe CDC six thousand. Yeah, and this was Fortran right. programming, right? Fortran programming on punch cards, you know, just uh, this medieval medieval period in computing. 
tell us a little bit about the your experience with punch cards programming. So I'll tell you, I'll jump ahead a little bit to tell yeah. you about punch cards. Yeah. So remember that after after a nineteen seventy one, I go to my, do my military service. Yeah. And then I I I go back to. Um, let's see. I serve. Uh, when do I go back to college? I go back to I go back to graduate school in 1976. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, to do a master degree in computer science. Right. And we had the project to do. So I go to look for what I was familiar with: a key punch machine. I wrote, first first of all I wrote my program on a, on a, nobody whoever writes their program on a sheet of paper. First of all, you write your program, right. and then you go to 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 key punch it. And I said, where are the key? I mean, finally, in in a in a dark, a dead end hallway, dark hallway, I found a, a, a dusty key punch machine. I said, okay, I found one, and I sit down and I start punching the cards. And somebody walks by, and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm punching the cards for my for my for my project. And he says, punch card. Nobody uses punch cards anymore. <laughs> so I said, how do you enter your job? You use a terminal. Really? What is a terminal? So this, this, uh, this gap that I had between, uh, between when I took the first programming course, which was 1970, and just a few years later, the world has changed. The microcomputer was introduced. Yeah. NP computers was introduced. So big theoretical revolution and big practical revolution. So I did not yet see a, a, a microprocessors at all, but but there were terminals. Now, now if you wanted to submit a, a, a job, you you had a terminal, and that's how you submit your job. So I had to learn how to use terminals. So somebody saw me p- trying to punch cards, and it was as if I doing my project with a hammer and a chisel today. You know, imagine you see someone using a hammer and a chisel to write a, a project, to write a, a, a writing assignment. And this happened in just the space of a few years. Very sure, but this year I think we really people don't realize the '70s was a big of. In the, in theory, there was a huge change, an introduction of NP completeness. Um, the, the the paper was 1971. In fact, we just celebrated 50 years to yeah. Cook's paper, yeah. and and Gary and Johnson was 1979. Kind of became the the, the Bible that we all read. I read it cover to cover in a, when I was in, a, in a, with a PhD student. So you changes microprocessor was invented in the 1970s. So 70s were a big period of big, 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 big changes. And in the background, we we don't know also the the, the internet was developed. Okay, internet was first 1969. So again, the major development of the internet happened also in the 1970s. And Tal Rabin, who did her schooling in Israel in the 1960s and 70s and finished her bachelor's in Israel in 1986. Tal describes getting email earlier than most of the rest of the world because her dad was a computer science professor. Email was so rare in those days in the 1980s that it was monitored. Listen on. And a little tidbit is that I have had email since 1983 
because we realized that this email existed and my father was half a year away at Harvard teaching. So we thought that this would be a very convenient way for communicating. That we understood. And the phone calls were really expensive, like $2 per minute. So I got email. Sort of the university agreed to give me the email so that I could communicate with my father on matters of urgency. Mm -hmm. One day... I'm called by the head of the department, and he says to me, I've been monitoring your emails, and I see that you are also writing personal emails to your father. This should stop. <laughs> Think about it now. If somebody would come and say this to you, I mean, you'd flip. And, and it seemed like a normal thing that he was looking at my email and the thought that you need to conserve on the emails because... It's only for really important things. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I guess there's two aspects there. One is that someone is actually reading and monitoring your emails. And then the second is, well, you know, we need to save some bytes while you're, by not sending personal emails. Exactly. <laughs> Such it's a different, phenomenal. Nobody would think about it. Such a different time in computing back then. Yes. Uh, what was the first programming language you ever programmed in? Oh, it must be Pascal. And that I was in college. That was in university too. Yes, yes, in my introduction to computer science. This was my, as I said, first uh, encounter with things, and I think it was taught in Pascal. Computer scientists are often prone to thinking while sitting in front of a monitor. I'm sure you have done it a lot of times. However, both Moshe Vardi earlier and now Tal Rabin up next talk about the importance of doing computer science with a pen and paper. What was your creative process back then and what is your creative process now if it has changed? You know, how do you think about a problem? Do you like to think about it in the back of your mind as you're doing other things? Some people do that. Others just sit down and you know, just work on it for, for an hour or so. How is your creative process? So I don't know much about it, but I know that I need to be holding a pen and have a paper. Sometimes I never write anything and sometimes I'll write like one word or two. But I do um, sit and focus. I sit and think about it or lie in bed and think about it. But it's concerted thinking. I'm, I'm focusing on the problem. But definitely sometimes I suddenly I'm walking on the street and suddenly I think, oh, here's a point. So it's, it's really a combination of these things. And of course, I work with people. Not on my um, uh, on that first problem. Then I worked mostly alone, and I spoke to Michael from time to time. But today, of course, I collaborate more, yeah. and almost exclusively, most papers are with others, and so we also work together and talk. Act 9. Adversity. When life throws unexpected curveballs. Regina Barzilai moved to the U.S. in 1997 as a housewife, then got a Ph.D. from Columbia, and became a faculty at MIT in 2003. In 2014, she was shocked to learn that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. I asked her about her immediate reaction to this news and the long repercussions of that significant event on her life and on her career. Here's Regina. 
so moving forward in the timeline, I want to ask a little bit about your um, experience in the around 2014 when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. The diagnosis for any kind of cancer is usually a very slow-moving process with many tests over a long period of time. You usually never know, okay, you know, this is this is it. It's usually, okay, let's try the next test. Uh, how did you mentally react to that at that stage in your career where you're already tenured, you already have a research group, uh, and you already have a family, uh, but mentally, how did you react to that? So uh, this was like the biggest shock of my life because I was healthy. You know, the only time I was in the hospital is when I gave birth to my son. And, you know, I couldn't believe it because they always see it's one in eight, but you always think that you are the seventh one because I never had any cancer in my family. And, you know, I did mammogram. They told me go and do the mammogram. I did the mammogram, but, you know, I never expected that we're going to hear something different. So I, I still remember, you know, I went to... So I did several mammograms, and then on the third year of doing me doing mammograms, I remember I went to Mount Auburn. This is a hospital. It's funny because mm. Mount Auburn is both a hospital and the cemetery <laughs> at Cambridge. <laughs> so you need to qualify. It's, it's a hospital. They're close to each other. It was a hospital, so I went there, and mm. I, I remember they sort of told me, you know, um, you have something. Let's just just in case go and do biopsy and uh, I said okay and uh, I was really stressed it was like tremendously stressful and yeah. um, I yeah, yeah you know I don't think that I actually ever seen anybody who and no, it's not true I've seen some people but I've seen some people not very close people but I've seen people and uh, yeah. it was uh, it was very stressful then I did one biopsy, it was the end of April, and um, I pretty much knew what will be fully my course of treatment by the end of July. Mm. So there was something in the middle, but like by the end of July, I knew I'm going to have chemo, and I started my chemo. Uh, but yeah. until then, I didn't know. So I... It was really bizarre times. It was on one hand, you know, I go through all this medical tests. I didn't say anything to my students because, you know, I sort of, I would tell them when I know what's going right. on, but I didn't know what's going on. And uh, one of my students won Best Paper Award in ACL during that mm. during the time. And, you know, and they're so mm. happy. And I was like, yeah. who cares? But I tried to be nice and I mm. um, showed my excitement and then you know and then you just go the, the hardest part is actually when you don't know because once you know you know you, you have like physical pains and right. stuff, but at least the the course is clear and so at at any point did you think that um did you think that well um maybe i only have a few years left or was the course of the treatment clear to you uh, from the diagnosis point so you really don't know. You really don't know. Like at the moment that you hear the word cancer, you hear this is this is the end. And you know, you, you stop believing the doctor because you know what is your chance? Your chance is tiny. And all of a sudden they tell you you have it and say it's it's you know ninety-nine percent that you're fine. What exactly does it mean? You know, I was at tiny percent. So you stop believing the numbers, you forget probability uh, as applied to you. And you always expect the worst. And um and, and, you know, like, first, it's like there are periods. There is a period when you try to understand what exactly do you have, because it takes a while. You need to do, you know, some lumpectomy, they analyze it, whatever. It takes right, a while. Right. You kind of leave to the next test, to the result of the next test. Then when that part is done, when, you know, the, the real serious 
chemo starts, you are really in a messed up state. I think in the following way, because you don't know what's to come on one hand. On the other hand, you know, usual life, as you know, when you just go to work and you do your stuff and you go back, um, is sort of messed up. But the treatment in some ways kind of consuming that you, at the end, you just need mm. to do one day at a time. And that's what you do. You do one day at a time. Mm. There are many professionals who um, who are cancer survivors. And as you said earlier, there is no manual for how to deal with this. Are there things you learned through your experience, um, things that you did right or things that you didn't do that you would recommend our listeners if they ever have to face such a situation? Mm, I don't think there is a universal advice because people deal with these situations uh, in a very different way. And uh, I think I was really... For better or for worse, you know, I was already, you know, in 43 uh, when I got it. And I feel, you know, this experience extremely matured me. And maybe, uh, you know, the listeners are much more mature than me at age 43. Um, Mm -hmm. It really changed my understanding and perception of the world. Um, And um, there is a period when you feel it very acutely. As again, time is a healer. When time goes by, you know, things change. But there are still, you know... A lot of parts that you know it, it just changes how you look at the rest uh, at the rest of your life after you know mm-hmm. after going through this experience and you know and the the part that you know you kind of discover there is this other world because when we are living in academia you know we are totally stressed or oh, is the paper getting in or oh, did I get this grant mm-hmm. or did my student got this job or didn't get the job or whatever this is really really important and um and you need to be really serious about it, correct? Uh, to, to really push the boundaries and really think very hard about the problems. And in some ways, I think we're, I'm sort of saying, I would say I, I wouldn't say we, I would say I, are infantile, because you know, you live in this kind of artificial world where a lot of real problems of real people are really never enter your life because you have a very organized life. Of course, there is a stress in papers and, uh, and, you know, when you become a patient, you all of a sudden see a different reality. You go, you know, these treatments uh, like radiation and other, you know, happens every day. You see these people, you see a lot of sick people. You use like, how come I didn't know that these communities exist? You know, I, I was not aware, you know, the suffering and how yeah. it impacts people and how fragile we are. So this was my big eye opening when I went through this treatment. And it's funny because MIT and MGH, I just, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes mm-hmm. walk, one subway stop away, but such yeah. a different world. Yeah, certainly your experience changed uh, the kinds of research problems that you work on, uh, you know, your, your work with MIT Jamil Center and your other work that is about oncology. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that work that you've been doing recently? Yeah, so actually, when I came back, um, I, I really kind of, it was rethinking, you know, you're coming back to the world, your hair starts growing back, um, but it takes much longer to actually become your normal self. And I started asking myself, you know, how come I am doing this stuff? And I, like one of the topics that I really like is working on undeciphered languages, which doesn't have any practical meaning whatsoever, yeah. but it's really, you know, intellectually extremely interesting task. And I, and I did some work. I really enjoy reading about it. 
And he was saying, you know, what is my right to walk on this when there are lots of people who, you know, don't benefit from technology and you discover how much technology doesn't enter this world when you're part of that world? Because you can't imagine even the simplest question that you want to ask, tell me what happened to the patients like me in this hospital? They can give you some general statistics, but... If you want to ask if women of this age with this particular what happened? I mean, the information is electronic medical record. Like, what's the problem? People cannot do even that. So there are a lot of things that they cannot do that they should be doing. And many times you as a patient, you know, you say, oh, you can do A or you can do B. It's up to you to decide. But how can you decide if you don't have the information to make the decision, correct? Um, and at that point, when I came back, I felt... I. It's like I was not interested in NLP, you know, I still had a group and I, but my right. mind was like, what can I do to change it? It was like, I went through it. I have, I have a mandate, I have to change it. And then I started going around and around these places and asking different doctors, what can I do? And mm. um, uh, typically, you know, being, you know, a professor, you kind of, you know, you're like a prima donna. You come, oh, oh, I, oh, thank you, thank you so much that you want to work with me. Here, yeah. I'm playing, knocking on all the doors, and nobody cares. And it's like we're doing yeah. great. Thank you very much. And it took me a while until I found, you know, what I can do um, to to make, uh, you know, to what I felt to make a difference. Um, and uh, since then, I pretty much changed the whole direction of my research uh, because it's not only about like taking the tools that we develop and applying it to medical data. You really need to have absolutely new machine learning, um, you know, algorithms to solve the real problems, not just to do something. You can do something. There, there are a lot of problems that you can solve just by taking what is out there and applying it. But there are like millions of problems for which we don't have a good computational solutions. And, you know, and the longer I am in it, the more I see these big issues. It's very interesting. Changing a research area is always tough and changing one to a very applied research area is even tougher. And as you said, you went and knocked on many doors before you finally came to, I guess, a set of problems you wanted to work on and a set of people who would work with you. I guess the takeaway for me is to be persistent um, from your experience. No, I want to, co to correct you. The, mm -hmm. What I actually saw to myself, and that's why I never worked on clinical uh, NLP mm -hmm. or whatever, because I thought it's like apply thing. It's like people who cannot, you know, it, it was really obnoxious of me to think. So I said people who cannot really compete on the methods in NLP, they just take an existing tool in NLP and apply it to medical records and get uh -huh. some paper. This is not the case. Uh, like, okay, you can, you can do it and you can even get out something. But like, if you're thinking like in 2017, um, one of the topics that I started actually in, I started in 16, but in 17, there was a the first paper, um, Tommy yeah. Akala and I, and our students at MIT, we started working on modeling small molecules. And, uh, this area was really not part of kind of core machine learning. We know that the machine learning, there are methods, there is natural language processing, there is computer vision. There was even, you know, sequencing stuff. But modeling the molecules and their properties and other things, it wasn't there. I had to beg my students to work on it because they said, you know, it's not really machine learning. And since then, this field uh, really grew. And there is a lot of new methods work. How do you represent correctly the molecules? Is, you know, graph convolution is the right way to go? Uh, we've seen, you know, the amazing uh, advancement that happened on the, 
you know, the protein modeling. So this is a very, very active field that really changes. Super exciting field. And uh, it's not, I mean, yeah, it has an application, but research itself in this field is actually very much methods driven. Um, and, you know, in this case, the reason I think, you know, I could jump into it relatively easy because the field didn't really exist at the time. You know, this was a similarity with yeah. NLP, that when I ended NLP, it was at the moment of the transition. So it happened to be that in chemistry, uh, in chemistry slash drug design with deep learning, this was a field uh, that was really on the earlier stages. And um, I actually, when I started working with it, I didn't even connect it to the drugs because I was in this exploratory stage. I said, I don't know what I want to do. And Professor Klaus Jensen, who is a professor in chemical engineering, approached me. He was introducing me by my then department head, Silvio Michale, who is a, a, a Turing Award winner. He introduced me to him because I just needed some machine learning person on their DARPA grant. Uh, related to how to do retrosynthesis, which means to identify the path of generating molecule. And I thought, okay, why not? I will try. And when I started like talking and looking what is available, you know, Tommy, uh, who was my, who from the beginning worked with me and was a collaborator on the grant, we realized it's like really a humongous opportunity here um, in terms of algorithm and, and maybe doing it for a year or two, I look from my window and now I see, you know, from my window, I see Amgen, I see Novartis, I see Moderna from a window from MIT. And that's why wouldn't we connect it to actually drugs? You know, there was a connection. Because I was working on, on imaging and predicting cancer from, from mammograms and other things, but then I realized it's also a potential to do it for therapeutics. And that's how we, you know, kind of, uh, pivoted this walk into the therapeutic area. So, um, you know, when I'm looking at this path, it was kind of really no direct path. When I committed to walk on, um, you know, on cancer, I thought cancer is, you know, NLP extraction from medical record. It's, you know, deep learning from images to predict, you know, progression of the disease or to predict who is going to get the disease. I didn't even connect this work. It took me two years to connect it. But now mm -hmm. this is kind of most of what I'm doing today. That's amazing that you've been able to convert that motivation into really, really useful research uh, program. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Israel, featuring immigrant computer scientists from Israel. Act 10, imposter syndrome and the human tendency to compare people to people. The dreaded imposter syndrome, when you feel like a failure even in the midst of success, like you don't belong to your work community, like your talents and skills are just out of place in your workplace, like you are basically an imposter. Many technologists in academia and industry, as well as entrepreneurs, suffer from the imposter syndrome, sometimes acutely, sometimes chronically sometimes occasionally. It is known to be common among women technologists. And closely related to the imposter syndrome is the tendency, the human tendency, to compare oneself to others and the tendency of others to compare you to others. I spoke with two of my guests about this phenomenon. First up is Regina Barzilai. She has an extremely unique philosophy 
to handling imposter syndrome. One of the most unique philosophies I've ever heard. The way uh, when I was younger, I did feel it many times. And I remember when I came to MIT, I, you know, I knew that Shannon was a professor here, you know, professor yeah. scary. It's like, wow, are they all like Shannon here? You know, mm. uh, I'm definitely not Shannon. Uh, and um, uh, there were all these questions, you know, do I belong to this institution? But I think that what happened like later to me, it's like I am now thinking I have goals, okay? Uh, so I have goals. I know what I want to achieve. So my point is, you know, I am what I am now, <laughs> correct? Um, I really care to get where I want to get. And yeah. it's an, I, I am just a vehicle to bring, you know, uh, to, to, to bring the group to, to this particular point. Like, for instance, um, you know, we have a lot of diseases like cancer, so there is really no treatment. That they, right. You know, they're lethal. And despite, the, you know, all the big words that we are saying uh, about AI and healthcare, we really didn't change anything in terms of mortality outcomes and drugs. So there are several nice. areas where I think I have some ideas, my students have some ideas that we believe we can change it. So that what really occupies my mind, how I can make a difference there. It's, you know, who cares if I am smart or not smart? This is irrelevant. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. my thinking is, would we be able to push it through? So again, but yeah. it came with an age and the purpose. Okay. That's such an interesting philosophy, um, thinking of oneself as a vehicle for a certain kind of research or a certain kind of work to succeed. Uh, that, that philosophy kind of removes um, the I out of the situation uh, and essentially it addresses the imposter syndrome, but also addresses other things and it gives the persistence and the energy to keep moving forward. It's a very interesting philosophy. Next up is Tal Rabin, her father, Michael Orabin, who's still alive, by the way, as of February 2022. He was a winner of the Turing Award, considered the Nobel Prize in Computer Science. He won that award when Thal was still a little girl. I first asked Thal about her perspectives on her father and his accomplishments. Your father was Michael O'Rabin, who was also an internationally prominent computer scientist, and he actually won the Turing Award, which is considered the Nobel Prize of Computer Science, in 1976. Um, what was your experience like growing up uh, with your father? Did you realize that he was uh, such an accomplished computer scientist? Did that drive you? How was it in your early years? Of course, as a child, I had no idea. But my father, at some point, and for him, uh, at a young age, he started getting awards. By the way, in 76, when he got the Turing Award, I didn't even know. It's not that this was something that was so big in the family and I was young and I didn't even know. But later on, he got some prizes when I was already aware of them. I think that really understanding the magnitude of my father's work and its impact on our society, on our digital society as we know it today, I think really came with understanding the technical material more. Mm. You can be told, oh my God, these results are amazing. Mm. And you can understand it on some level, but that it's amazing. But really, really the depth of it came with the learning and the education that I got, which of course started in the university. And I think it's something very special for a child to understand what their parent does and such a deep level 
And in fact, my dad just celebrated his 90th birthday. Wow. And there was an academic um, uh, celebration in Jerusalem. And I spoke about that. And in preparation of this work, I again had this feeling that, you know, just comes into your heart in a deep, deep way. And uh, it's wonderful. And Tal also spoke about the feeling that one needs to overperform as a woman in the computer science and technology field. And a particularly sensitive topic came up when others brazenly compare Tal to her own dad. Mind you, Tal is a highly successful computer scientist in her own right. And yet, some just can't help it. Listen on. And I can tell you that yeah. many, many times I've heard, oh my God, she's not like her father. Yeah. But then I would always think, and you? You are like my father? <laughs> I mean, really, how many people are like my father? So what are you comparing? And on some levels, it's also true in the comparisons between other researchers. Yeah. And, and, and th these comparisons, people would say the worst things to me. Yeah. For example, my father became an IACR fellow. Mm -hmm. And he didn't come to the conference at that point. He was really, really senior. And, and he asked me to give, and I was there the, at Crypto. And he asked me to give this ICR acceptance on his behalf. And he always was a great speaker and he wrote a beautiful speech and I gave it. Yeah. And afterwards, somebody came to me and said, and I was already an established researcher, yeah. much better than the guy who came up to me. And he says to me, you really need to get from underneath the wings of your father. <laughs> so... Not only am I a woman, I also have a very famous father. So, so did your approach to handling that question when it comes up, when the first few times that it came up in your life, were you just shocked by it when someone came up to you and asked you? I think I was very uh, aware from the beginning that this was a ridiculous comparison. But again, it's also part of my personality, I think, being able to take it this way. Do you say something aloud and explicitly to the person or do you just handle it mentally, internally when it comes up? Most times I don't say anything. That guy, by the way, came and apologized later. I, see. I don't know if somebody in the circle had said something to him or he just realized what a complete idiot he was. But um, as I said, really, those people, they're better. So, you know. It's amazing that you're able to process it internally without actually saying anything aloud to the person. It's also for my love for my father. Act 11, Alternate Paths. In the last act of this episode, I asked each of our three guests a hypothetical question. First up is Tal Rabin, Professor UPenn, who grew up in Israel from the 1960s to the 1990s and immigrated to the U.S. in 1994 for her postdoc. My last question is a bit hypothetical, but I'm going to ask it. You were born in the U.S. Imagining that you had stayed in the U.S. and had grown up through the U.S. educational system, early school, middle school, high school, and university here, and everything else being equal, you know, your, your personality, your life, your family, your parents, you think your life and career may have evolved differently than what it did? I think that, as I said, there were lucky points, right? 
at the end of my bachelor's, the problem that Michael gave me. Yeah. So I don't know if those two determining facts would have happened in another path. I don't know if there could have been something like that. I don't know. But I think I would have been different. I would have not been me had I not grown in Israel. My life in Israel, the relationships, the country, the smells, the sun, everything, the food, it's me. That is so beautiful. Next up is Moshe Vardi, professor at Rice, who grew up in Israel in the 1950s to 1980s and immigrated to the U.S. in 1981 for a postdoc. My next question is a little bit hypothetical, um, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, so you grew up in Israel and then, you know, you did your bachelor's, master's and PhD there. And then eventually you moved here to the U.S. and you stayed here. Uh, if in a parallel world you had been born in the U.S. and you had gone through the U.S. educational system, um, all that's being equal, you're the same person, you have the same kind of family. Uh, do you feel like your career and your life may have been different? And again, this is a hypothetical question. Um, I mean, it's kind of not completely hypothetical in the, in the following sense that both uh, of my parents are Holocaust survivors. Mm. They met in what's called a DP camp in Germany. DP stands for Displaced Persons Camp. The, the, the Allies, there were so many people who were displaced in the war. The, the Allies created the places where these people can come and settle mm. down and then figure out where they're going to go from here. Mm. So my parents met in a displaced persons camp, and my father wanted to go to America. There was America was to be the golden, the golden state, the golden country. You go there and life is good. Um, Israel was no Israel yet, and yeah. there was fairly clear it's going to be a war. Yeah, and in fact, I had my mother had a brother, and he lost his wife and daughter in the Holocaust. And he said, I cannot, I cannot stomach another, another war. And he came to the United States. Mm. And my mother said to my father, we're going to go to Israel, to Palestine. And they went to Palestine and had to fight a war. They, they, went to, they came to Israel. Uh, my mother in late 47, my father in early 48. Mm. And there was a war. They, both, they had to fight in the, what we call the, the 48 war. We call it the, the war of independence. Okay. Mm. Um, but I could not so far to imagine a scenario where they decide to go to America. Okay. Right, right. And I'm born in America. I think growing up in Israel probably gave me, you know, there is a phrase, tough time make uh, strong men, strong people. Strong people create successful times. Successful time create Weak people. <laughs> Weak people create hard times. Okay, <laughs> it's a full cycle. <laughs> it's a cycle. It's a cycle. So growing up, um, growing up in Israel, as I said, you know, having to as a child dealing with terrorism, like at age from age twelve, re the realization that there's some people who want to kill me. Yeah. And this, you know, you can think what you want about the the, the conflict and what what right. to do about it. But the reality is, at the end of the day. It doesn't matter. It is somewhat traumatizing, and I'm sure it is also traumatizing to Palestinian children. I'm not trying yeah. to 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 take yeah. any of this away, okay? Yeah. And but going like that, you know, um, serving serving in the military, 
pro-Eulerian both uh, discipline and responsibility and also leadership. I mean, it's hard for me to separate who I am. Right. I mean, yes, of course, there is. We, we all know about this nature versus nurture. But the answer it is both. Yes, I come to the world with a certain uh, genetic uh, imprint, and this genetic imprint is just potential to do certain things. Will you do these things or not? Right. Okay. Right. So it's very hard to. Uh, yeah. To, to say what I, I would be like. I mean, here, for example, I, especially in, the, in academia, I have leveraged my, my uh, academic freedom and tenure, and I had very open disagreements with the administration here. Yeah. And I did not shy from such very open disagreements. I have tenure, but again, they, you know, I mean, it's just, I know other people with tenure that would, wouldn't do that. So. I can't tell you exactly, but I said, you know, this is, you know, people tried to kill me before, so this is this is not so bad. They're not going to kill me. They're upset at me. They're not going to kill me. You know, yeah. I won't get a raise. It's not so bad as being killed. So, so you cannot separate. You you grow up in Israel, and it shapes me shapes me as I am. We end with Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, who, as a double immigrant, has a most unique viewpoint on this hypothetical question. Again. She grew up in Moldavia in East Europe from 1970 to 1990, moved to Israel in 1990, stayed there until 1997, and immigrated to the U.S. in 1997. Here's Regina. Uh, The next question I want to ask is a little bit hypothetical, but I'll ask it anyway. So you grew up a little bit in Moldavia and then a little bit in Israel, and then finally you immigrated to the U.S. Did you ever think that Hey, if I had grown up in one country, maybe if I'd grown up completely in the U.S., all else being equal, me being the same person, maybe my life and career may have been very different. Or if I'd grown up completely in Israel from when I was a child, my life and career may have been different. Is this something that you ever thought of? I don't think about that. But what I do think about sometimes is like, you know, I was, you know, I think I was very privileged that I've seen so many different people in different countries and different attitudes, and they definitely all shaped my understanding of the world and helped me to be robust, you know, in all these different situations. Uh, But, you know, the part that I am sort of lacking, I feel that, you know, there are big parts of my life that that's how we started our interview, that, you know, Kishinev lives in my head. It doesn't look like what is in my head for decades already. Uh, um, And there are parts that are totally remote. I do not, you know, I cannot go to the school where I studied. I cannot connect to the people with whom I grew up. And that's what I really miss. I'm always wondering, you know, how are they doing? Uh, Or... You, you know, and I remember some gardens that I really loved. I'm always thinking, how are these gardens? There is this feeling of something, this uh, nostalgic feeling that I have in me. But on the other hand, I'm thinking that somebody who even grew up in Boston, Boston doesn't look uh, today what it was in the 70s. So uh, this is what I miss. And I also sometimes you know, think that People who grew up in one place, they can connect to the place in a very different way than those of us who are replanted to these places. And, you know, and I was always wondering, how is it if you're really grounded in your environment and you have all these connections and you know exactly, you know, what this person was doing 10 years ago, which I typically don't. So, but it's just, you know, one of the pathways that could have happened. So... 
This was the lead episode on immigrant computer scientists, titled From Israel, featuring three distinguished immigrant computer scientists who immigrated from Israel to the US. What you heard on this episode were merely excerpts. Coming up in the next episode, next week, is the full interview with Tal Rabin, professor at UPenn and head of research at Algorand Foundation. Also ACM Fellow, AAAS Fellow, IACR Fellow. She spent 23 years at IBM Research before recently becoming a university professor. And she's the daughter of a Turing Award-winning father and also has a successful lawyer as her mother. Hear her full interview and story in its entirety, coming up next week. After that, we're going to have individual episodes featuring the full interviews with Moshe Vardi and with Regina Barzilai. Stay tuned. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.